These Enigma episodes have been supported by the Economic and Social Research Council, or ESRC, as part of their annual Festival of Social Science. This festival celebrates the amazing research and advancements of our best and brightest scientists, and this year almost 500 events are happening all over the country from Saturday the 2nd through to Saturday the 9th of November 2019. You can check out the official hashtag, ESRC Festival, on Twitter, and you might even find that some of the events are in the news. Case S01 E14 Enigma Part 2 of 3 In the last episode, we looked at steganography, that is, hiding the message in some crafty way in clothes or music or digital content, and we looked at cryptography, hiding the meaning in some crafty way through transposition or substitution. And then we had a long look at just one way in which substitution ciphers can be mechanised. That method is Enigma, and for most countries, for years, its almost impenetrable complexity utterly defeated all attempts at cryptanalysis. And as you may remember, cryptographers generate codes, and cryptanalysts analyse or attack codes. It would take painful, costly decades before the right minds were in the right places at the right times to painstakingly unpick each inch of enigma. And so now our story turns back to the eerie twilight years following World War I. Old tensions continue to simmer across Europe, but added to this, the poison of newly wrought enmities begin inexorably to cast an ever-darkening shadow over the coming years. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this episode. And if you get a moment, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. Enigma manifested itself as such a danger during World War I that even in 1926, eight years after the First World War had officially ended, British, American and French cryptanalysts were still trying to crack the cipher, and with virtually no real success whatsoever. With the passing years, however, the Allies began to feel that they really didn't have much to fear from Germany anymore. The country was, in their view, depleted, exhausted, crushed, and the urgency with which they had first approached the challenge of deciphering German communications began to fade. With it, both the number and the calibre of allied cryptanalysts also fell. The problem now was increasingly seen as purely academic. It was interesting, but it was certainly not urgent anymore. At least not in the UK or the US or in France. In Poland, however, the climate was very different. The country had only just regained its sovereignty in 1918 with the end of the First World War, but whilst almost everyone else had turned to recovering and rebuilding, Poland found itself engaged in a series of bitter skirmishes with the Soviet Union. 
the Polish-Soviet war fomented for two long years before finally grinding to a hostile stop in March of 1921, though it's worth noting that many of the deep schisms and factions that this created in surrounding countries still exist to this day. In short, though World War I had ended, and though even the smaller, more personal Polish-Soviet war had judded to a wrathful ceasefire, it was far from peacetime in Poland. The threat of further invasion loomed on the western border with Germany and on the eastern border with communist Russia. Poland was caught in a vice of two malevolent storms, one full of the fire of a newly galvanising Germany and the other breathing all the ice of implacable hostility. And both countries were keen to expand their territories. At its simplest, Poland was desperately vulnerable. Not for them, this sense of ease and willingness to believe that all was now well with the world. Instead, the Poles established the Bureau Szyfrow, or, in English, the Bureau of Ciphers, because, as Simon Singh notes in his monograph, The Code Book, if necessity is the mother of invention, then perhaps adversity is the mother of cryptanalysis. During the Polish-Soviet War, the Bureau had intercepted and deciphered more than 100 messages, cementing the importance of its place in Polish military intelligence. And seven years later, it was not only still hard at work, but it was evolving. Remember that one way to attack a cipher, as we saw in the previous episode, is through frequency analysis. Those frequencies are, of course, derived from the message, or in other words, from language. And for many, that naturally suggested that linguists were the obvious experts to hire. However, the method of frequency analysis is pure mathematics. And in May of 1926, the then chief of the bureau, Major F. Bocconi, was given permission to seek out not linguists, but skilled mathematicians to try to break the mechanical cipher Enigma. A couple of years pass by, and then, one Saturday afternoon, something intriguing happens. It's one of those tiny happenstances that can change the fate of worlds. Sometime between the end of 1927 and the start of 1928, a parcel arrives in Warsaw, in Poland. It has come from Germany, and its label claims that it contains radio equipment. And then, as the parcel is making its inoffensive way to customs, a German embassy official gets in touch. The parcel has been sent to the wrong address by mistake. It must be returned. No, not just returned. Returned before it is even processed through customs. Such peremptory, almost panicky insistence from such a personage is rather marked and it arouses the suspicions of the sleepy weekend customs officers. What well-paid embassy official wastes their Saturday chasing a parcel? A parcel containing some bits of radio or other. Why would such an unremarkable parcel need to be stopped before it had been checked by customs? Silence, or a much more casual, careless approach here, would probably have aroused much less interest. but. Instead, aghast at the error, perhaps even fearing possibly extreme reprisals, the embassy official has made things infinitely worse. 
and the customs workers, suspecting some plot, inform the Bureau Shifrov. Bureau employees intercept the parcel, they open it, and they carefully consider its contents, and you are not going to be surprised to know that, of course, it did not contain radio equipment. Instead, it was a commercial version of the Enigma cipher machine. Try to hang on to the fact that this is the commercial version because this detail becomes crucial a little later on. Somewhat perplexed by this frankly extraordinary boon that has just landed in their laps, the Bureau contact two engineers from the Polish radio company Witwonia Radiotechnica, AVA, or, because my Polish is terrible, just AVA from now on. They come back up several more times. These AVA engineers, Ludomir Danilovich and Antoni Paluth, examine the machine over what remains of the weekend. Then, with excruciating care, the Bureau repacks it back into its parcel and obligingly returns it to the German embassy. And there have never been any indications that the Germans were aware that the parcel had been opened, but more on that in a second. Now, your first reaction might be, oh God, no, don't send the parcel back. That's a terrible decision. But remember, intelligence is a delicate game of cat and mouse and cheese. It is not enough to merely know things about your enemy. It is also vital to know what they know. And, hold on here, to know what they know about what you know. If the Germans thought that the Poles were ignorant of the parcel's contents and significance, then their confidence in Enigma would remain high. If, however, they felt like Enigma had been substantially compromised, they might change it all overnight, and that would put the Poles, and indeed any other allies who'd made any progress, right back to square one in their code-breaking efforts. If there is one crucial principle that accompanies code-breaking, it is absolute secrecy. Secrecy not just about failures, but also and especially about any success that one may have had. Likewise, if there is a crucial code-making principle, it is absolute secrecy about knowing when your code has been cracked. Now this also might sound bizarre, but if you know that the enemy has cracked your code, and if you know that they don't know that you know this, if they think that you're ignorant of their success, they will think that you're in the dark about the fact that they are reading your messages. So much the better, because now you can feed them trustworthy-seeming messages whilst also working on a brand new cipher. You can waste their time sending them off on wild goose chases. Better still, if they don't learn about this new cipher, with luck, they will continue to focus all of their attention on the old one blinded by the idea that they have found all that there is to find. And for precisely the same reasons, the Germans may have known very well that their Enigma machine had been opened and inspected by the Poles, but better to seem more ignorant than they really were. In essence, as we will see so many times in this series, the cryptology of war is a gigantic, high-stakes, life-and-death game of poker that is so secretive no one is ever really sure of all the people who are even playing anyway. So, back to this Saturday morning parcel from Germany. To maintain the charade of ignorance and to stop the German cryptographers from taking defensive steps, it was vital for the Poles to seem entirely unsuspicious about the German embassy's sudden fascination with mere radio equipment, to ensure that the parcel looked as though it had never been opened, 
and to send it straight back, bright and early, on Monday morning. And the Germans too may have played the same game, pretending to find the parcel exactly as untouched as the Poles were suggesting. Whatever the case, for the Polish, the clue was enough. If Enigma machines were being moved around, something was clearly afoot. And sure enough, only a few months later, on the 15th of July 1928, Polish Signals Intelligence, or SIGINT, specifically radiotelegraphers, began to pick up the first German messages encrypted using Enigma. Bureau cryptanalysts were immediately ordered to decipher these intercepts. Anthony Paluth, that's one of the radio engineers from AVA who had studied the commercial Enigma machine, and Captain Maximilian Cicchi, head of the German section of the Bureau Schiffrob, both attempted to break the cipher along with Leonard Danilovich and Viktor Mikulovsky. But their best efforts were entirely unsuccessful. This, as it turned out, was because the military version of Enigma was wired differently to the commercial version. After some time spent fruitlessly trying to make any progress, at last, the attempts were abandoned. But this was not defeat. Remember, Poland stood between the simmering threat of Germany and the freezing menace of Russia. They knew, as well, that Germany was moving its Enigma machines around, and now they had started to intercept Enigma-encrypted messages over the airwaves. Though the messages could not be read, the intention was clear. Secret coordination and organisation was underway, and these are the hallmarks of large-scale military operations. As yet, these first signs were mere distant seismic shivers, but they told a dark story. Across the miles, the gears of war were slowly beginning to grind up to speed again, and Poland would be the first to face the onslaught. It didn't matter, then, that they couldn't yet crack Enigma. They had to keep trying, and time was rapidly running out. Marian Rejewski was born on the 16th of August 1905 in German-controlled Bromberg, now Bijoch. He was the youngest of seven children, and after completing secondary school, he began studying mathematics at Universitat Poznanski, or Poznan University. In early 1929, a quiet, bespectacled 23-year-old Rejewski was writing up his master's dissertation when he was approached by a younger mathematics student holding a sheet of paper. This page came from the Bureau Shafrov, and it contained a list of 20 German-speaking mathematicians from the university. Rejewski's name was amongst those on the list, and he and the others were invited to meet with Professor Zdzislav Krugowski, the director of the Mathematics Institute at Poznan University. Rejewski was close to graduating and pondering his next steps, and so perhaps curious? perhaps seeking a future for himself, perhaps merely out of politeness, he agreed to go. The purpose of the meeting was to invite the students on the list to take part in a cryptography course. The course began on Tuesday the 15th of January 1929 at an off-campus military facility. The students were assembled in a large mathematics seminar room and they were addressed by three men. 
Major Franciszek Pekorny, then head of the Polish section of the Bureau Szyfrow, Captain Maximilian Cicicki, head of the German section of the Bureau Szyfrow, and Antony Paloth, the civilian employee and engineer from AVA, who was interested in shortwave radio and who had inspected that commercial enigma that had been mistakenly posted to Warsaw. Major Pekorny explained that the students had been invited to take part in a course in Poznan about cryptography, which was to take place once or twice per week for a couple of hours each time at a military facility. Indeed, the course was not at all secret, nor even secretive, other than that it was also doubling as a selection process. Rayevsky soon realised that the first lecture by Pokorny and the second lecture by Chichki were almost entirely based on a French cryptography book by General Marcel Givierge, and for reasons we can only guess at, Rayevsky didn't attend the third lecture. Instead, he graduated with a master's degree in mathematics on the 1st of March 1929, and then he moved to Göttingen in Germany, and he began a course in actuarial statistics. Cryptography, at least then, did not seem to hold any magic for him. Instead, he had determined that he would become an insurance mathematician. How differently our lives can turn out compared to the plans we had for ourselves in our early 20s. As Rejewski's life, education and experience was taking shape across the sea in Poland and Germany, in the UK, another as-yet-unknown star equally unaware of what he would yet do or become, was also in the Ascendant. Alan Matheson Turing Born in Britain on the 21st of June 1912, at the age of 14, Turing began his first term at Sherborne School in Dorset. There was no public transport available on his first day, as it happened to be on the same day as the general strike, so Turing cycled there from Southampton a distance of about 100 kilometres. Now, as someone who has once cycled 40 kilometres on a very nice road bike, on excellent roads, in suitable clothing, I cannot remotely wonder at the fact that this feat was later reported in the local newspapers. But this gives a small idea of who and what Turing was. Generally known at Sherborne as shy and socially awkward, Turing was often criticised in his school reports for untidiness, neglecting elementary mathematics in favour of advanced algebra, conducting chemistry experiments, and for doing equations during his religious education lessons. He was also rather a loner and made only one close friend in his early years. Christopher Morecambe, a boy from the year above. Both boys were passionate about science, and the experiments Turing had initially conducted in isolation he now did with his friend. Sadly, Christopher Morecambe had tuberculosis, and this flared up on the 6th of February 1930. Morecambe passed away just five days later. Turing requested a photograph of his friend from Morecambe's mother, which she sent to him, and his thank you letter to her read, He is on my table now, encouraging me to work hard. Morecambe's death seems to have cemented Turing's solitary nature and his desire to solve problems through working on them alone. Perhaps, like so many of us, he was afraid of forming any further deep bonds because they, too, might one day be broken. In other ways, however, Morecambe's death seems not to have changed Turing. His school reports still criticised him for a lack of discipline and an inability to focus on conventional topics dictated by the syllabus. Instead, he preferred to follow his nose and ask his own questions, an inclination that would later serve him and his country 
very well indeed. A few months after Morecambe's death, during the summer of 1930, as Turing was coming to terms with his loss, Rejewski left Germany and went to visit his home in Bijoc, back in Poland. Whilst there, he received a letter from his old supervisor, Professor Krugowski, offering him a teaching assistantship at Poznan University. Perhaps he was uninspired with Göttingen, or maybe he was wishing to be back in his home country, or maybe he simply was in need of paid work. Whatever the case, Rejewski opted to quit the statistics course, move back into Poznan, and become a teaching assistant. Upon his return, Rejewski asked what had become of the cryptography course he'd briefly attended, and he discovered that, far from it petering out into nothing, the Bureau Shafrov had set up an office close to the university in Poznan on Ulika Svetigo Martina, or St. Martin Street. In addition, two of his fellow students on the course, Enrique Zygalski from near Poznan and Jerzy Rochiki from Vizhkov, both aged just 21, had been selected to work there. Rejewski expressed an interest in working there himself and found himself being visited by then-Lieutenant Colonel Guido Langer, and this interview, or appraisal, or whatever one might call it, seems to have been successful, because the Bureau Shafrov subsequently agreed to take him on. Colonel Vladislav Kotichuk notes, If one were to hazard a characterisation of the little team, its strength might be said to have stemmed from the diversity of the men's personalities. Marianne Rievsky's penetrating mind and skill in formulating questions and advancing far-reaching hypotheses from scarce information were supported by the precision, energy and perseverance of Enrique Zygalski, who was from Poznan, such qualities being ascribed in Poland to inhabitants of this region, and Jerzy Rodziki, born in the Ukraine and educated in Russian and Polish schools, contributed elements of vivid imagination and intuition. Suddenly finding oneself employed by the Bureau of Ciphers might sound glamorous and exciting, but, as is so often the case, the reality was somewhat different. Rejewski, Zygalski and Rochiki found themselves working in the basement of the city garrison headquarters. However, this branch office in Poznan had only ever been intended as a temporary measure, and in 1931, as soon as Zygalski and Rochiki had graduated, it closed down. Instead, all three mathematicians were invited to move to Warsaw to continue to work for the Bureau Shafrov there. Once more, Rejewski had a decision to make. Should he remain in Poznan as a teaching assistant for his old professor, or should he move to Warsaw to work as a cryptanalyst for the military? Rejewski chose cryptanalysis. Meanwhile, back in Britain, Turing's school reports continued uncomplimentary. But at the same time, he was far from failing in his school career. Christopher Morecambe's parents created a prize for science in their son's memory, and Turing won this twice, once in 1930, around the same time that Rejewski started working for the Bureau, and then again in 1931, just as the Bureau Shifrov's branch closed and the three Polish mathematicians relocated to Warsaw. Indeed, Turing maintained a close relationship with Christopher's parents, and especially his mother, and he visited them frequently. As his school career began to come to its natural conclusion in December of 1930, Turing earned a scholarship to study mathematics at King's College in Cambridge University. 
Whilst the traditional College for Mathematics at Cambridge at the time was Trinity, they had filled all of their scholarship places. Any candidates who were considered a near-miss were invited to King's instead. But as it happened, though, by this point, King's had cultivated a reputation of outstanding academic excellence. So, unsurprisingly, Turing accepted the scholarship and began his studies in the autumn of 1931. Turing fitted in well in this college. Dermot Turing, his great-nephew, argues that this was partly because homosexuality was part of the establishment, almost suffused into the stonework. Despite fitting in so well, or perhaps even because of it, and because of the many distractions that this new life at university may have provided, Turing's first-year exam results were disappointing. He received only a second-class grade, and he wrote to his mother that he could hardly look anyone in the face after it. Possibly galvanised, or having sufficiently found his feet, Turing's grades began to improve significantly, and at the age of just 22, he was chosen for a fellowship at King's. For a while now, we are going to leave the sleepy academic trials and tribulations of Turing in Cambridge and Rayevsky in Warsaw, and we're going to turn our gaze to the simmering pressure cooker of Berlin in Germany, to its ordinary citizens and those invisible casualties of war whose injuries are not of the body, but of the ego, of their pride. In June of 1931, a German walked into the French embassy in Berlin. He looked suspicious and uncertain, paranoid even. The purpose of this visit, he told the embassy official, was that he wanted to establish an appropriate contact in the French government, the Deuxième Bureau, perhaps, that is, the equivalent of the British agency MI5. Well, to identify an appropriate contact in the Deuxième Bureau, first he must explain a little more. What was his purpose? He had something to sell. Oh, and what was he selling? Secret documents. Really? And what secret documents might those be? Secret documents from the German Defence Ministry Cipher Office. Was the Deuxième Bureau interested? He could prove his worth for a price. You can imagine the surprise and interest and also the suspicion of the French embassy. Who was this man? What was his motive? Was he a particularly stupid spy? Or an extraordinarily cunning one playing a game far too elaborate for them to deduce? Were they in danger? Were the French government about to be duped? Who had sent him? Or had he simply walked in off the street of his own volition? The man was Hans Thilo Schmidt. He would later be given the cryptonym, that is, the codename, Asher. Schmidt was born in Berlin in 1888 to an upper-middle-class family. His father was a university history professor, and his mother a baroness from a Prussian family who had lost her title when she married. The Schmidts were not wealthy in money, though they were certainly not poor either. Rather, they were wealthy in other powerful currencies, connections and consequence. From his earliest years then, Schmidt's sense of his self, his entitlements, his proper position in society, 
the achievements that should naturally accrue to him is likely to have been strongly shaped. Aged 28, Schmidt married Charlotte Speer, the daughter of a prosperous milliner, that is a hat maker. Schmidt's new mother-in-law ran a shop selling umbrellas, walking sticks and, inevitably, hats to the smart, fashionable Germans of Berlin and the profits from this shop went towards purchasing a house with some land in the rural area of Ketchendorf for Schmidt and his new wife. One can't help but read between the lines of some of the historical accounts of this period and get the sense that Schmidt's family were handing his care over to his new wife and her family, perhaps in the hopes that they might make something of him, or at least just keep him out of trouble. Schmidt had a sister Martha and a brother Rudolf. As war arrived, Schmidt and Rudolf enlisted in the German army, and both fought in the First World War, but when the war ended in 1918, Hans Thilo Schmidt, the younger brother, was not considered worthy enough to retain, and he was sent home unemployed. Such a circumstance could wound even the toughest of us. Fighting for one's country, putting one's life on the line, feels like a course of action worthy of at least some recognition. And then to be found somehow inadequate or unnecessary could well canker in the soul of the most loyal patriot. But Schmidt might not have stewed over his rejection quite so bitterly had he not found such a stark contrast between his fate and his brother's. Rudolf Schmidt, his older brother, was not merely retained by the army. He was quickly promoted and eventually took up the position of chief of staff of the Signal Corps. In fact, in one of those unpredictable twists of fate, Rudolf would be the official who approved the army's use of Enigma, and his little brother, Hans Thilo Schmidt, would... But I'm getting ahead of myself. Schmidt returned home from the army to his wife Charlotte and their two children, daughter Giselle and son Hans Thilo, named after himself. Presumably, he and his whole family was hoping that they could rely upon his wife Charlotte's family business to support them, but with the end of the war came the crushing depression and then the hyperinflation which made it almost impossible to succeed, especially in a line of retail for items that one could, and indeed for a time, must necessarily live without. The business folded, the shop closed, and Schmidt and his family were left with nothing. Schmidt had little left to lose, and doubtless even more aggrieved at having to beg for favours, he went to his older brother for help. Rudolf had been the head of the Schiffrier Stelle, that is, the German Enigma Command Centre, from 1925 to 1928, and he was able to arrange a job for Schmidt with his successor to the role, Major Oschermann. The Schiffrier Stelle was based in Berlin, and it was responsible for creating and using ciphers and codes. Because of Rudolf's authority and his recommendation, Schmidt was immediately entrusted with the highest levels of confidence including being given a key to the safe that held the ciphers and codes. I can only wonder here how I would feel if MI5 were to get in touch with me today and ask me to join this cipher and code department as one of their most trusted employees who had the metaphorical keys to the metaphorical vault of all their best work. I'm assuming now that they don't use real vaults and safes, but, you know, I could be wrong. Aside from the inevitable excited panic attack, and I'm not sure how much I'm even kidding about that, I would be unbearably, wildly thrilled. Probably I wouldn't be able to shut up about it, which is why it's almost certainly never going to happen. But this was the Nazi regime, which might have taken some of the glow off of it. And so instead of finding himself dropped into the very lap of success and greatness, it seems that Schmidt found 
only woes and shortcomings. To him, this was a job, but it was hardly better than being entirely unemployed. Indeed, in some ways, to Schmidt, this was worse than being unemployed. He had to leave his family behind in Bavaria, and he had to live alone and isolated in an expensive capital city, Berlin, on a salary that could not support him in the style that he felt was appropriate, never mind sending back money to his wife and children. If this sounds odd to you, remember that this was the son of a one-time baroness. He had grown up in a nice house, with servants, and he had never known real want. His parents were respected and consequential. His brother had become a figure of real importance in the German army who commanded respect and held a great deal of power. Where was his success, his admiration, his power? Schmidt resented his brother's status. He resented this paltry job that he'd had to beg for and that, in his view, paid barely enough. He resented his rejection from the German army and he resented living a contracted, lesser, poorer life than the one he felt he should have had, that everyone else seemed to have. Indeed, based on the various histories and descriptions, Schmidt appears to have been almost a caricature of weakness, self-pity and lack of discipline. Over time, there have been many questions about his initial motivations for betraying the Nazis, and if we take a dim view of him, it's easy to believe that this was all about personal gain, vanity, glory, revenge, stupidity, and worse. If we want to give him the utmost benefit of the doubt, then he may well have been morally opposed to the brutal Nazi regime, but the bold fact of the matter was that Schmidt had debts of money and excesses of appetite. Indeed, his inability to resist temptation was almost infamous. He engaged in a brazen string of extramarital affairs with maids hired by his wife, to the extent that his children began having to check at doors so that they didn't have to walk into scenes of him in flagrante delicto. And yes, his version of poverty still involved having maids about the place. I wish I were that poor. His wife's reaction was to hire ever less attractive maids, and Schmidt's response to his children's questions on the matter was to explain to them that he simply loved women so very much. If that wasn't grotesque enough, his sister Martha not only regularly covered for his betrayals, but even arranged a girlfriend in Berlin for him that would, in her view, look after him properly. And just remember, he did not simply work in the Schaffrierstelle, he was one of the most trusted employees. Anyone who works in security and intel will recognise the point I'm making here. Schmidt was not simply a good candidate for being compromised and then exploited. He was platinum standard. Weak, vain, needy, easily seduced by flesh or finances, and in a position of extraordinary trust. In the end, however, it didn't even require someone to convince him that selling state secrets was his best new life choice. He went right on ahead and came to that conclusion all by himself. As I've said, as part of his role, Schmidt had access to the safe, and in that safe the manuals for Enigma were kept. How long it took for him to go from morosely pondering his debts to speculating how much those manuals were worth, I couldn't say. But at some point, he recognised that this was information that someone would pay for, and pay well. So let's go back to the French embassy, and indeed embassies in general. Usually, 
a well-run embassy will have in place procedures for dealing with exactly this kind of scenario. Schmidt would be known in some circles as a walk-in. During peacetime or wartime, for as long as there have been humans, there have been other humans willing to hand over information, that is, intelligence, in return for money, protection, escape, favour, revenge, and more. Prior to embassies, finding the right person and not getting caught in the process was rather awkward. Tell the wrong official, or general, or confidant, and you could find yourself in a dungeon, or worse, on a chopping block. But when the notion of governments in general, and diplomacy in particular, started to formalise, countries began to allow the creation of embassies on their own soil. And these missions, that is, the people from those other states and countries, created on foreign soil little singularities of secrecy and intrigue. Embassies and their missions, the staff that come with them, are protected diplomatically, and I mean really protected. There's an international legislative framework and agreements around embassies, and these are extraordinarily strong and well-respected, yes, but it's not just that. Or, one might say, that's really only the formality of the matter. Embassies are protected by almost sacred depths of convention and tradition. They are steeped in history, and they are thoroughly well-guarded by the fatal examples of the past. Spying on embassies is considered extraordinarily poor form, and secretly infiltrating one is such a breach of diplomatic trust that it can set back relations between countries by decades, causing untold harm to cooperation, trade and intelligence sharing. We all know that it happens, of course, and some countries are worse than others for it, but getting caught is unpardonable. Meanwhile, open attacks on and invasions of embassies are deemed to be outright acts of war, no different than if the host nation had literally invaded that other country's home soil. It is basically home soil away from home. But there's more. Embassy officials and diplomats are continually sending and receiving streams of incredibly sensitive information, both about their homelands, what's going on back at home and what are the decisions being made, but also they're sending and receiving information about their hosts. And diplomacy relies very heavily on not ruffling feathers by, for instance, accidentally revealing that you have assessed the current president to be an idiot, personally vain, very vulnerable to flattery, and so on. These are essential details for the homeland in knowing how to handle such a person, but this is going to cause a lot of unnecessary problems if such words find their way into the public sphere. So, just like military operations, embassies as extensions of their domestic governments also need to ensure that their communications are extremely confidential, usually through the use of encrypted and encoded communications. And, Given that their role is to keep their own governments up to date with what is happening with the host nation's government, their connections to higher authorities back home are automatically privileged. They don't mess around chatting to the concierge or the secretary on the front desk. Their intelligence gets straight to the people in charge. And, since good diplomacy can involve nice meals, fancy hotels, pleasing gifts and impressive social entertainments, the pockets of the wealthier embassies can be very deep indeed. All of this creates the perfect conditions for the would-be defector. The walk-in knows that the embassy is worth approaching, it's almost certainly safe to be in, and the people in charge can pay, pass on the intelligence, 
and even protect their new source. As a result, embassies do not merely expect walk-ins. During wars in particular, they are actively prepared for them, and many will have thoroughly clear clandestine service protocols, essentially a step-by-step walk-in handler guide. First, the walk-in must be vetted for their worth and, quite frankly, for their mental health. Assuming that they do not seem to be suffering from some sort of genuine delusion or personality disorder, and that they seem to have something to tell, then the quality of their intelligence needs to be assessed. A factory worker who can only tell with confidence one small fact about one weapon that they work on every day is useful, but they're not critical. One wouldn't want to wake up all the heads of all European intelligence agencies for such a walk-in, probably not even the head of the embassy's home agency even. By contrast, a trusted employee from the Chiffrier Stella, with access to the most sensitive information about the enemy's communications encryption machine? If such a claim can be verified, then this is certainly worth waking up the boss and paying for. Handsomely. In such scenarios, if the person is assessed as mentally fit, sincere in their intentions, and in possession of high-quality intelligence, then there is usually a call or some other transmission to another, more senior figure with the authority to act. The transmission might contain a code phrase, let's say, Red Rose, that indicates a walk-in of a certain calibre and importance. In the background, the machinery begins to silently work. More calls and communications flit back and forth between embassy and various agencies. Background checks are swiftly carried out. Assessments are made. Histories and records and traces are picked over. A profile is quickly created suggesting likely motives, credibility, weaknesses and so forth. All of this is crucial information since, after all, the embassy is dealing with a person who cannot be trusted and who is willing to betray sensitive information for money. If they will do that once to one country and their home country, then they can and will do that again to any other country whatsoever. Going into a negotiation or even just an interview with such a person without being properly informed about them beforehand is less than wise. After all, what if this person isn't really an innocent walk-in, but is in fact an extraordinarily cool, calm German spy playing an exquisite game of double-cross? They walk in pretending to sell information, and perhaps they even hand over some high-quality intelligence but their intentions may well be to infiltrate the very spy networks that are arrayed against the Germans themselves, to learn names, identities, procedures, gaps in intelligence, how much they value certain information and more. If espionage and secret selling is anything, it is a never-ending layer cake of possible deceit. Just like cryptology and cryptanalysis. With all of this in mind, the official who has greeted Schmidt is doing a lot of quick thinking, wondering quite what sort of person he is, and endeavouring to judge whether these grand claims of having access to the very heart of Enigma are in fact the first manoeuvres of a counter-intelligence strike, or the ramblings of a mentally unstable individual in need of medical attention. Schmidt, it seems, had envisioned a degree of scepticism ahead of schedule, or he knew enough of the workings of embassies and wartime espionage or he was simply desperate to start selling secrets as fast as possible. No sooner was he asked to provide some proof of his access to this information than he produced some of the very documents in question, and, later, he detailed in a letter 
his access to the coding manuals for the Enigma machine. Surely this would be of interest to the Deuxième Bureau. He could meet with them. What about Belgium? What about Holland? He is so keen that he suggests times and places, but also, unsurprisingly, he is wary and does not want to meet on German soil. But what were they worth? Would the Deuxième Bureau pay? Did they want to buy copies of these documents? And the answer, it seems, was yes. In early November 1931, just as a 23-year-old Alan Turing was starting a scholarship at King's College in Cambridge, and 26-year-old mathematician Marianne Rievsky was moving to Warsaw to become a full-time cryptanalyst, 43-year-old Schmidt was meeting with an agent from the French Secret Service with the intention of selling him secret documents from the very heart of the German Enigma office. The rendezvous place? The Grand Hotel in Verviers, Belgium on the border with Germany. The French Secret Service agent, Rodolphe Stallman, also known as Rodolphe Lemoine, codenamed Rex. And Schmidt's newly minted codename? Asher. Later, he would also be known as Source D, but we'll stick with his surname for now. Unsurprisingly, the first interest of the French Secret Service agent Rex was to better understand the motivations behind his new asset, Schmidt. Why, he wanted to know, was Schmidt taking such a dangerous step? Schmidt's answer was that he was in dire financial difficulty and that he owed no loyalty to his country given that Germany, that is, the German army, had not shown loyalty to him. Seemingly satisfied that Schmidt could be worked with, Rex asked him to bring some documents to the next meeting. He wanted to see them up front so that they could negotiate their monetary value. Schmidt was keen and prompt. Just a few days later, on Sunday the 8th of November 1931, the same two men met again in the same location for the same purpose. But this time Rex was accompanied by 34-year-old Captain Gustave Bertrand, a French military intelligence agent. If they were to properly evaluate the worth of the documents, then they must have expert eyes assess them, and Schmidt's haul did not disappoint. Captain Bertrand was astounded at what he had managed to bring. Two manuals that explained in detail how to operate the military version of the Enigma currently in use by the Germans. Rex and Bertrand conferred. And in the end, Schmidt was offered 10,000 marks if he would allow them to photograph these two top-secret manuals. They couldn't be taken away, of course, since they would be very quickly missed. This was long before the advent of photocopiers, and with such confidential documents, the number of copies would be kept to a strict minimum anyway. Similarly, their whereabouts would also be thoroughly accounted for at all times, and these had come out of a safe that only a very few people had access to. Schmidt must get them back to the safe before anyone raised the alarm, and so photographing the manuals was the only safe option. But what is 10,000 marks worth? Were they offering him treasure? Or trash? Well, it's actually really difficult to get an accurate estimate because throughout the wars the currency changed a few times, so for a while it was called the Mark. Then, from 1925 to 1948, it was the Reichsmark. Then, after 1948, it was the Deutsche Mark. 
And, added to this, the chaos of the post-war depression and hyperinflation all meant that for years, the value of the currency fluctuated wildly. Throw into the mix some patchy record-keeping, and it's basically difficult to get close to a realistic figure. Extremely tentatively, based on a lot of head-scratching and searching, this offer may have been worth something like 50,000 Deutschmarks in today's money, or about £5,000 today, which translates to around about $6,000. But honestly, it could just as easily have been worth 10 times that. And judging by subsequent events, my estimates are almost certainly on the low side. Whatever the actual value of the offer, it would seem that Schmidt not only snapped it up, he was eager for more of the same. From the perspective of the French Secret Service, however, this apparent bargain proved to be deeply anticlimactic. The problem was, neither Rex nor Captain Bertrand were active cryptographers or cryptanalysts, and so they had not realised that the documents would enable them to encipher messages using Enigma, but not to decipher them. In other words, the manuals would enable the Allies to create a replica of the military version of the Enigma machine and to use it, but they still could not crack the German ciphers without knowing how the machine was initially set up. Remember what I said all the way back in the first and second episodes, knowing the method is useless unless you also have the key, or in the case of Enigma, both the daily key and the message key. And Enigma has some insanely high number of potential starting configurations, so guessing is simply out of the question. Stymied, Rex and Captain Bertrand sought second opinions from British cryptanalysts, who indeed confirmed that the documents were useless for decrypting German messages. And this substantially reduced the value of the documents in the opinion of the French. Now, it was less an extraordinary scoop, more just another annoying piece of the puzzle. So the French turned to the Bureau Shafrov in Poland. From 1921, a formal agreement between France and Poland, the Franco-Polish Military Convention, had been in place, and this committed both parties to keeping lines of communication open. As we already know very well by now, Poland's Bureau Szyfrow already had its own history with the Enigma machine dating back to before the war, and they had had brief access to a commercial version of the machine due to that postal error in Warsaw. The documents that Rex and Bertrand had obtained from Schmidt were duly sent across to Poland in a diplomatic bag, though one might suspect that the French believed that they were merely passing on a task that would prove as impossible for the Poles to crack as it had been for the French and the British. Unsurprisingly, the Poles reiterated the same message. Schmidt's documents were useful in revealing that the Germans had adapted the commercial version of Enigma for military use, but those manuals could not be used to crack the Enigma cipher not without additional information, anyway. The Poles had another angle to try. The then head of the Bureau Shafrov, 37-year-old Major Gvido Langer, requested that Captain Bertrand approach Schmidt once more, but this time ask him to procure documents that detailed the settings of the Enigma machine. That is, the monthly books containing the daily keys, the code books, that were currently being used by the Germans. Schmidt's day in the sun was not yet over. Schmidt met with Rex and Captain Bertrand several more times, took many more marks from them, and handed over ever more documents. In turn, over the course of the five months from May to September of 1932, 
those confidential papers found their way to the Bureau Shafrov in Poland, and, of those, some contained details of the military enigma settings, the Daily Keys. But Schmidt was himself becoming a serious problem. As with so many of his life choices, it seemed, Schmidt appeared unable to stop himself from gradually poisoning the very well that he had committed himself to digging. Rather than discreetly enjoying his sudden, lucrative, vengeful income, he was instead brazenly advertising his newfound wealth. He embarked upon an extravagantly lavish lifestyle and travelled to Switzerland and Czechoslovakia for extended holidays with his wife. Even to the untrained eye, such a sudden, prolific expenditure in a country strangled by a severe economic depression was extraordinary. To try to get some sort of control over the situation, Schmidt's handlers put an end to him smuggling top-secret documents over the borders. It was a needlessly risky option for someone of his status and employment anyway, but all the more foolhardy when the documents he was providing by that point had proven less than fruitful in helping to crack Enigma. Instead, they instructed him to use steganography, specifically to write letters in invisible ink, and through this to provide the French with information about the plans of the German military. As Schmidt was turning his access to secrets into a steady supply of ready cash in Vervier, and as Turing was receiving his disappointing first-year results in Cambridge, by the 1st of September 1932, the three young Polish mathematicians, Rejewski, Zygalski and Rajicki, were all settling into the Bureau Szyfrow in Warsaw. No sooner were they in their new offices than they were assigned a new task. Solve a German naval cipher. Although it took some time, as they were relatively new to the job, they did eventually manage to crack the cipher. A year later, between late October and early November in 1932, Rejewski was approached by Captain Maximilian Chichki. If you have an extraordinary memory, you might remember that he was the head of the German section of the Bureau Shifrov. Captain Chichki asked Rejewski if he would be willing to work afternoons on a different cipher. But he would be working alone, and he would not be permitted to inform his colleagues what he was doing. This cipher turned out to be Enigma. Rejewski accepted, and he began to pit his formidable intellect against the ultimate mechanical cipher. But, as you may remember from the first episode in this miniseries, Enigma is not a single process. There are three scramblers, one reflector, a plug board with multiple switched letters, the ever-changing daily keys, and the individual message keys. The complex, multi-layered Enigma cipher simply could not be cracked by one perfectly aimed silver bullet. Instead, each step in the process must be dismantled inch by painstaking inch in a perfect reversal of the encipherment. This was a challenge that had utterly defeated the British, the French, and all other nations that had tried their hand at it. So, could this young Polish mathematician make progress where all others had floundered and failed? The Bureau Shafrov handed to Rejewski the manuals that Schmidt had supplied in the hopes that these would allow him to break new ground with Enigma. But, as the French had realised, 
and as the British had confirmed, Rievsky quickly concluded that, for his purposes, the manuals were not so much priceless as useless. Completely useless. The Enigma problem was unsolvable without the actual machine. The manuals explained how the machine worked, how it was set up, how the information about the settings was transmitted, how it was operated, how you send a message, and how you decrypt an enciphered signal. All of that is fantastically good, but it was all useless if you don't have the machine. Without knowing how the coding rotors are wired, and without knowing the internal wiring, it was just not possible to apply this information. In short, if Rayevsky wanted to decipher Enigma, what he really needed was a replica of the military Enigma machine, not a theoretical description, not an exploded diagram, not an operation booklet. He needed an actual physical copy. And so this is where he began. And you might imagine that the best way to get a hold of one of these would be to steal one from the Germans. But during the war, the Germans were under strict instructions. If ever their machine were to be compromised, if they were to be attacked and it looked as though they might be killed, they must destroy the machine first rather than let it fall into enemy hands. So getting hold of an actual real copy of an Enigma machine was virtually impossible. Now you might also remember that one of Rievsky's talents was his ability to extrapolate and theorise on the basis of extremely sparse data, and that talent now became critical. In a feat of mathematical deduction way beyond the capabilities of my brain, Rayevsky developed an algebraic formula which hypothetically enabled him to calculate the wiring inside the right-hand entry scrambler, but only if he knew the settings of the military machine that the Germans had used. That is, he'd have to know the day key and the message key. At this point, Captain Maximilian Chichki, head of the German section of the Bureau Shafrov, handed Rayevsky the code books detailing the daily keys for September and October of 1932. Hans Thilo Schmidt, doubtless keen to maintain his lifestyle, had sold these to the French just a month earlier, in August of 1932. At this point, it was deep into the winter of 1932, the September codebook was already out of date, and the October one would very soon follow suit. But at this stage, that didn't entirely matter. Rayevsky could go back to codes sent during the days listed in the codebooks and work on those as test cases. He soon discovered, however, that his formula was somehow not supplying him with the right answer. Now, were this me, my confidence in my mathematical prowess is so low, I would have automatically assumed that my maths was entirely at fault. But Rayevsky knew better, and thank goodness, too. The problem, he discovered, was that he had assumed that an element of the wiring in the military version was the same as in the commercial version, and of course, it wasn't. Once this was corrected, in an incredible step forward, the importance of which cannot be overstated, he was able to use his formula to calculate the wiring inside all three scramblers. By the end of 1932, the machine was effectively solved. That is, Rayevsky knew not only how to operate it from the manuals, but how to build it from the information he had managed to extract and extrapolate. And as you should recall, what he needed more than anything was a physical machine. As soon as Rayevsky informed his superiors of his success, the Bureau began to build replicas of the military versions of the Enigma machine in conjunction with AVA, the Polish radio company who you may remember from the awkward customs incident earlier on in this episode. 
Replicating the Enigma machine simply would not have been possible without Rayevsky's formula. As October passed and the last of the codebooks in Rayevsky's possession effectively expired, he now faced the exact reverse of the problem he'd had before. Two months ago, he'd had keys for September and October supplied by Schmidt, but no replica of the military Enigma machine. Now, he had his replica, but no access to the daily keys. He needed codebooks. In fact, in duplicity upon duplicity, Schmidt was still meeting with Rex throughout this time, and at each meeting he was, in actuality, handing over more codebooks listing the daily keys for subsequent months. But Major Langer, the overall head of the Bureau Shafrov, and Captain Maximilian Chichki, the head of the German section, specifically opted not to share them with Rayevsky. Why? Well, their rationale was that they did not want Rayevsky to become dependent on the codebooks. If the Germans tightened up security, or, more likely, if Schmidt was caught, their ability to acquire new codebooks would be lost, so it was crucial to be able to operate on a more parsimonious intelligence diet. Rayevsky's next task, then, was to find a way to identify the daily keys without the codebooks. Now, the Poles by this point had quickly determined that the Germans were using a doubly encrypted message key in the first six letters of every message. Rayevsky later wrote, The fact that the first six letters of each message formed its three-letter key, twice enciphered, was obvious, and I will not dwell on the matter. Well, obvious to him, perhaps, but I guess we'll just have to take his word for it. The Germans had opted to encrypt the message key twice to ensure that there was no risk of having to resend the message itself if the message key was somehow garbled or received incorrectly. Now, resending whole messages is a grave risk to security because it produces the same content using yet more of the encryption pattern, and such an extremity is generally avoided by the Germans. Ironically, however, twice encrypting the message key, though it's only three letters twice over, is making the exact same mistake on a much smaller scale. This precaution, of twice encrypting the message key, opened a tiny chink in Enigma's armour, a chink wide enough to insert the point of a crowbar and prise it wide open. Sure enough, Rayevsky noted the following patterns. The first and fourth letters of every message key, while different to each other when enciphered, ultimately represented the same plaintext letter repeated twice. This holds two for the second and fifth, and the third and sixth. Thus, all the relationships between these pairs of letters are determined by the initial settings of Enigma, the day key. With each successive message, Rayevsky would summarise the relationship between these letters by writing them out in table form. So the top row of the table would list the first letter of every encrypted message, and the bottom row listed the corresponding fourth letter of every encrypted message. So, with a sufficiently large enough sample of messages for that day, he was effectively able to create a fully complete alphabet of relationships for the first and the fourth letter. And it would look something like this. You'd have A, B, C, D, F, G, H, blah, 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 all the way across the top. And then for the fourth letters, underneath A, underneath it would have F, B, underneath it would have Q, C, underneath it would have H, and so on. He would then repeat this exercise for the second and fifth, and for the third and the sixth, and then he would look for characteristic structures in these tables. And one example of this structure was that he discovered chains of letters. 
So for example, the letter A on the top row might correspond with the letter F on the bottom. So in this encrypted key, A would be the first letter and F would be the fourth. Then he found that if you looked for F on the top row, you would find that its corresponding letter on the bottom row is W. And then if you looked for W on the top row, you would discover that you'd gone back to A. So this would represent a complete chain or circle of letters with exactly three links. A went to F, F went to W, W went back to A. The number of links in each chain of letters was different. It could be three or seven or nine, and the chains themselves would change on a daily basis. Sometimes the number of links between chains on a given day would be mostly very low, and on other days they would be very high. Intuitively, we can infer that the links between letter chains must be determined by some aspect of the daily key, and, as we already know, this key changes every 24 hours at midnight. Rayevsky determined that the number of links in the chain of the letters reflected just the scrambler settings, that is, their position in the machine and the letter which they were oriented to, to start with, and that these chains had nothing to do with the plugboard cablings. And this is crucial because it massively reduced the scope of possible settings from 10 quadrillion right down to just 105,456. Now this is still an incredibly huge job, but now it's no longer impossible. Over the course of the year, all 105,456 settings of the replica Enigma machines were scrutinised by the team at the Bureau Shifrov, and they generated a massive catalogue which listed the chain lengths generated by each and every scrambler setting of the machine. What Rayevsky effectively had now was a primitive form of a database. When messages began to arrive on any given day, he would begin by figuring out the chains of letters in that day's message key. Once he knew the number of links, he could look them up in his database, and bingo, he had the appropriate scrambler settings for that day. And this was helped by the fact that the German cryptographers were not particularly good at choosing message keys at random. In Rievsky's own words, It is well known that a human being gifted with consciousness and memory does not have the ability to imitate chance in a faultless matter. Among other things, it is the task of the cryptologist to uncover and suitably make use of these deviations from chance. In the beginning, the German cryptographers would often choose message keys that were simply a repetition of the same letters, such as AAA or BBB. This is sort of the equivalent of using password as your password. When they were no longer allowed to do this, they would deliberately avoid repeating letters, but this also constitutes a pattern. They would also just choose letters next to each other on the keyboard, or diagonal to each other. Whenever another particular combination of letters were banned, the Poles would inevitably find some new sort of structure in the German's choice of message keys. As Rayevsky puts it, Whenever there is arbitrariness, there is also a certain regularity. There is no avoiding it. Approximately five or six people were employed for the exclusive purpose of deciphering the message keys. Rayevsky later invented the cyclometer, a machine that mechanically cycled through the possible permutations each day, a process which only took 15 minutes. While the Poles were now able to determine the message keys and the scrambler settings, they were still missing one aspect of the daily keys. This was the plugboard cablings. And this Rayevsky solved through the simple process of elimination. He now had the military version of the Enigma machine, his replica, 
and he was able to deduce both the position and the orientations of the scramblers from the doubly encrypted message key, and from there he would take an intercepted, enciphered message and type it into the machine. The majority of the output would be meaningless without the plugboard cablings, but persistence tended to pay off. After a while, words or phrases would appear that were slightly garbled or misspelt, but nonetheless recognisable. So you might have the word Berlin, and just two of the letters might be incorrect. These effectively provided a hook for Rayevsky to latch into. If he managed to figure out what the word or phrase was meant to be, he could also figure out which letters in that phrase had been swapped and which had not. And, if you have enough recognisable words and phrases to analyse, you could work out the plugboard cablings. Thus, Rayevsky was now able to put together all of the pieces of the puzzle. The machine, its scrambler settings, the plugboard cablings, and the message keys. And as a result, the Bureau Shifrov was able to read every intercepted message sent by the Germans. In plain words, the Polish were the first to crack Enigma. Indeed, the Germans did not introduce any changes to their methods of encryption for the next few years, and the team at the Bureau Shifrov were able to work on developing their methods of decryption. For this purpose, Rievsky was reunited with his colleagues, Zhigalski and Ryczyki, and Ryczyki developed what they referred to as the clock method. This enabled them to determine which of the scramblers was on the right-hand side of the machine on any given day. And without going into endless detail, the interesting thing about this method was that it relied not on pure mathematics, for once, but upon the frequency of letters within the German language. As the Poles quietly worked away, cracking Enigma, deciphering intercepted messages, outside of their Bureau Shifrov, the world continued to turn. In Germany in 1933, a largely unknown figure by the name of Adolf Hitler became first Chancellor and then Führer. His first six years in power were widely lauded as an outright success as his leadership led to a rapid economic recovery lifting the country out of the depression, presumably both psychological and financial, that had been strangling it. With his rise to power, the abridged version of his autobiography and manifesto, Mein Kampf, quickly became a bestseller. Also in Germany during this time, Hans Thilo Schmidt risked his life on at least six separate occasions between 1933 and 1936 to smuggle documents to the French military intelligence agent, Gustave Bertrand. Doubtless much of this was motivated by money, but perhaps some of Schmidt's zeal was also driven by his brother Rudolf Schmidt, who was promoted to general on the 1st of October 1936. Indeed, Rudolf Schmidt was later considered one of Hitler's most trusted generals. Meanwhile, the French agent, Bertrand, duly passed copies of Schmidt's documents onto the Bureau Shifrov in Poland. Bertrand maintained an interest in the progress being made by the Poles, and he even travelled to Warsaw several times, but in a classic intelligence manoeuvre that likely later raised several eyebrows, the head of the Bureau Shafrov, Major Gvido Lange, offered him little information. For many years, in fact, the French were under the impression that the Poles had been no more successful in cracking Enigma than either the British or the French. As all of this is happening, over the sea in England, Turing is eyebrow-deep in the mathematical debates around logic and in particular, this new notion of undecidability. Bear with me here, because though it's complex, it's interesting, and more importantly, it's relevant. 
Logician Kurt Gödel had argued that there were some mathematical questions which could not be answered through logical proof. This notion proved particularly controversial. At the time, maths as a discipline was widely assumed to be infallible. That is, there was nothing it could not solve. To state that there existed, out there, in the universe, these terrifying, undecidable questions flew directly into the face of this very comforting notion of disciplinary supremacy. And, almost in a fervour, mathematicians began to try to identify these so-called undecidable questions so that they could put them safely to one side. Turing was keenly interested in mathematical logic as well as machines and computing, and in May of 1936, just weeks before his 24th birthday, he submitted a paper on the topic entitled On Computable Numbers to the Proceedings of the London Mathematical Society. In this paper, he reformulated Gödel's problem by describing a hypothetical series of machines that could be designed to perform specific mathematical operations, such as dividing, multiplying, squaring or factoring. He referred to these as Turing machines. He then outlined another hypothetical machine, one which could be programmed to combine all of the functions of the series of Turing machines, and this he referred to as a universal Turing machine. Turing argued that it would be capable of answering any question that could be answered through logic. But this did not solve the problem of identifying the undecidable questions. As Turing himself pointed out in his paper, there are some problems which simply cannot be solved by machines. Regardless, in addressing this new, terrifying debate in mathematics, what Turing had essentially done with his paper was to provide a blueprint for the modern programmable computer. Yes, the technology did not exist yet to turn his hypothetical devices into reality, but his paper was well received by mathematicians and we are alive now in a time of computers because of his work. Whilst his paper worked its steady way through the review process, Turing had been invited to spend a year in the US at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study, and he embarked on this journey on the 23rd of September 1936. Three weeks later, on the 12th of November, his paper was read by the reviewers of the Proceedings of the London Mathematical Society, and they chose to publish it in two parts on the 30th of November and the 23rd of December 1936. Not quite a year later, in the autumn of 1937, still in the US, Turing began to take considerable interest in cryptanalysis, owing to the increasingly likely possibility of war with Germany. And sure enough, in March 1938, Germany annexed Austria. However, Europe at large made little real response to this militarily aggressive manoeuvre. Similarly, Turing was preoccupied with writing a thesis for his PhD on the topic of ordinal logics and relative computing, and his thesis was approved on the 17th of May 1938. The following month, the Department of Mathematics at Princeton awarded him his PhD. Turing had now been in the US for almost two years, far longer than his intended one-year visit, but though he was offered a position there, he decided instead to return to Cambridge at the end of June 1938. Back in Poland, the French Secret Service had a new plan. They suggested to the Poles that they should effectively pretend to have cracked Enigma. Remember, the French don't know that the Poles really have cracked Enigma. This, the French hoped, 
would trigger the Germans to switch to a cipher that would potentially be less secure. The head of the Bureau Schaffrav, Major Guido Lange, was horrified, primarily because, as you know, the Bureau had not only cracked Enigma, they had done so five years ago and had been reading all the German Enigma messages they could intercept for the past half decade. A change in cipher was exactly what they did not want. Indeed, internally, at the start of 1938, the head of the Polish intelligence department, Colonel Stefan Meyer, requested statistics representing how many of the intercepted German messages had successfully been deciphered by the Poles within a period of two weeks. The number was 75%, but Rejewski later argued that they were perfectly capable of deciphering a far higher percentage, maybe up to as much as 90%. The problem? They simply lacked the number of personnel required. Even a 75% success rate is extraordinary, however, given that many of the intercepted transmissions were heavily garbled by interference. Perhaps prompted a little in the direction of preventing the French from starting such a story themselves, the Poles began to share the content of decrypted messages with the Allies, but they would not elaborate on their methods of decryption. Essentially, they were afraid of counterintelligence, and as we'll see much later on in this story, with good reason. Whilst they were passing on decrypted messages, they were a valuable and useful ally, worth protecting by their more powerful neighbours. But if France or Britain could have the method for themselves, they would not have hesitated to immediately get access to it by any number of more or less honourable means. With their method would go their advantage, and so, by keeping their means and practices secret, this was, in its own way, an act of self-preservation. But this five golden years of secret success and the thin veneer of safety it was buying for the Poles was about to go up in flames. On the 15th of September 1938, the Germans introduced changes to their methods of decryption. Anybody who knows the start date of World War II might have an idea of what is coming. Perhaps the Germans had caught wind of the possible infiltration of their cipher. Perhaps this was simply akin to the wisdom of changing one's password at regular intervals, that is, more a method of prevention than a deliberate attempt to cure any known problem. Or perhaps it was a bit of both, but whatever the case, the net result was still the same. Previously, German cryptographers were setting their machines to a pre-specified initial position using the day key in the monthly codebooks, and then, at the very start of the message, they were twice enciphering the message key, and, thereafter, switching the settings to match that message key for the rest of the message. But now, instead of using the monthly codebooks and the daily key settings, they were told that they should select their own initial position. This three-letter initial position was sent to the message recipient unenciphered, followed by the twice-enciphered message key. In a single stroke, Rejewski's letter chain method and all its accompanying databases and mechanical systems were rendered entirely useless, and the understaffed, underfunded Polish bureau Szafrow was left scrambling to pick up the pieces and begin anew. Within weeks, however, Rejewski came up with the idea to create an adapted version of the military Enigma machine which would be used to mechanise the process of decipherment of the message key. The engineers from the radio station AVA managed to create six of these devices by November 1938. Their purpose was to work in parallel, and by doing so, they drastically shortened the usual exhaustive search process, passing through all 17,576 possible scrambler orientations, a job that could take up to two hours, 
until they found a match. The units were referred to as bomby kryptologichne, or cryptologic bombs, that is, bombs with an E at the end, although nobody, including Ryevsky himself, can seem to remember why. One story suggests that they were irreverently christened with this name by Rochiki. Another claims that they were named after a type of ice cream that was popular at the time, a bomb glacé in the shape of a hemisphere. Still others have suggested that it was because of the sinister ticking noise they made whilst operating. In short, it seems that the real provenance of the name has quietly fallen out of living memory and far into the depths of myth and muse. Whatever the case, the Bureau Shafrov did not rest with the bombs. Around the same time that these were being built, Zhigalski created a manual method for using perforated sheets of card. This might seem technologically a step backward, especially as the bombs did not take as long to manufacture as the perforated sheets, but card does not randomly malfunction or require much in the way of regular maintenance to function effectively. Zhigalski's method was effectively a catalogue which made use of the relationships between the pairs of letters in the twice-encrypted message key. Specifically, the mathematicians were focusing on so-called females. These were instances when the same letter appeared in both versions of the enciphered triplet in the same place, that is the doubly encrypted message key. When this happened, they were able to work backwards to figure out which settings of the machine could possibly allow a plaintext letter to be enciphered twice as the same letter. The Zhigalski sheets had a full alphabet along the top and down both sides, and this created a 26 by 26 matrix, which in turn represented all 676 potential positions of the right hand and middle scramblers. Small holes were cut into the sheets at each point where the right hand and middle scramblers could potentially create a female. Once the set was completed, the relevant sheets for a particular day's message key were stacked on top of one another atop a table with a light shining through the surface. Any places in which the light shone clear through all the perforations in the card indicated which settings could have produced that female. These were then checked manually by the team. But there was a catch. Creating these sheets involved making around 150,000 perforations in pieces of card with a razor blade, and they already lacked resources and manpower. Three months later, they had only managed to make two sets of sheets for each of the six possible scrambler positions, leaving them heavily reliant on the bombs, and then another devastating blow destroyed all the Bureau's latest efforts. On the 15th of December, 1938, the Germans began to introduce yet more changes to the way they used Enigma. Quietly, in absolute secrecy, Germany was preparing for all-out war. End of part two of three. This episode of Enclair was researched and fact-checked by Rebecca Jagodzinski. And it was scripted, narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. And it was supported by the Economic and Social Research Council, the ESRC, as part of their Festival of Social Science. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog, and also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. 
The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash onclair. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore onclair. If you like, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at rjjagodzinski. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H.